today we find ourselves in chapter 7 where we're introduced to two interesting characters. A Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, and the widow of Nain. And I want to look at their stories today. Let's start with the centurion. Let's put up Luke chapter 1, um, or Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. Um, that looks like it says, is that chapter 7, verse 1 through 10? That might have been a mistake, and I might need to read somebody's Bible. Okay. Oh, when Jesus had finished saying all these things to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Okay? Now moving on. There was a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, and he was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. They were begging him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such a great faith even in Israel. So that was shocking. He was saying, this Roman pagan dude, he's got more faith than you, the chosen children of God, okay? Then the men who had been sent out returned to the house, and found the servant well. Before I talk about this guy, I want to show you a picture. It's a picture of a bird. Let's pop this up on the screen. This is not a seagull. I would not show you a picture of a flying rat in here, okay? This is actually an albatross. I just, I'm, I did some research on albatrosses. Did you know, I'm going to give you some fun facts. They can fly up to 60 miles an hour. Their windspans can reach over 11 feet. They can fly 10,000 miles in a single flight. They're such efficient flyers. And the crazy thing, scientists recently discover they can fly while they're sleeping. Now, why do I show you this picture of this bird? Because it amazed me when I was discovering these fun little facts. Who wouldn't be amazed by an albatross, okay? But look at verse 9 in this story. It says the centurion, this pagan Roman military officer, amazed Jesus. The Greek word for amazed is thumatso, and it means to be stunned, to be stunned. This is a word that usually describes people's reaction in the Bible to Jesus. People were amazed. They were stunned at his ability to heal. They were amazed at his profound teachings. But here it's being used to describe the fact that Jesus was amazed by this guy. It's a, it's a total twist in the plot here. And this is an amazing feat this guy pulls off. He amazed Jesus. I do not think Jesus amazes very easily, him being God and all. I think he's seen quite a bit, okay? Yet this guy pulled it off. Now I'll get back to this guy in a moment. Let's put a comma there. But this story brings to the surface a great truth that I want all of us to memorize. So I'm going to pop it up on the screen. And the truth is this. God can be found in the most surprising places. That is so true. It's so exciting to me. It's something I've experienced so often, so frequently in the last couple of years. The first place God can be found or located or, or encountered is in the life of very surprising people. I want to give you a couple of examples. 
A pastor recently recounted of a story of a woman in his church. The woman's name was Sharon. And Sharon showed up at the church because this church had a food pantry and she needed some food. She shows up and they look at her and she's missing a lot of her teeth, hardly any teeth in her poor little head. And then they start talking to her and they realize her situation was pretty dire. She'd lost her husband recently of 40 years of marriage. Her son was in jail. Her daughter was struggling with addiction. She found out she has diabetes and she's um, in the process of losing her vision. So this woman had endured quite a bit of hardship and yet she was a total delight. When the people in the church were talking to her, she just couldn't help herself. She just kept recounting all of her blessings. She kept saying how thankful she was for the beautiful day, how thankful she was for this church, for the family that had taken her in recently, for the fact that there's a food pantry. She was just filled with gratitude. And yet, here's the sad truth. Most of us, at first glance, wouldn't have looked at this person and said, well, this is a location I'm going to encounter God in. We wouldn't expect to encounter God in the life of this woman, yet there God was, filling her heart with a gratitude that was infectious and contagious to the people around her. It's so surprising. The second story comes from the 1800s. There was a man named Vincent, and he moved to a Belgian village. And he was poor because he'd given all of his belongings away to the poor people in the region. And so he found himself sleeping in a haystack behind a local bakery. And the church, the local church, took up a collection to give him enough money to um, get a place to stay and to get some clothes that didn't reek so bad, all right? But he instantly gave all of their money away to other needy people in the area. That's the kind of person he was, all right? And here's where the plot thickens a little bit. The church had actually brought him to this village to be one of the preachers on their staff, but they just couldn't handle that their preacher was a homeless guy living in a haystack. Obviously, they didn't know too much about another homeless preacher, Jesus, who did a pretty good job preaching, okay? So they fired him. Well, as you probably know, his name was Vincent Van Gogh, and he went on to be pretty good at art. He just he made kind of a good living at art. But so many people have encountered God, not only through his acts of generosity, but through the beauty of his artwork also. Who would have thunk it? There's God right in the middle of a guy's life who is living in a haystack behind the bakery. The Bible is full of examples of people like this too. Take, for instance, the Magi. We read about them every Christmas, and we're, they're referred to as the three wise men in most songs, even though we're not told there was only three of them, and we're not told they're even particularly wise. What they were is astrologers from the east, probably Persia, and most likely they weren't even of our same religion. They were Zoroastrian priests. You can look up that religion online after church, okay? So if they dabbled in any kind of magic, which we call magi for, it wasn't magic like, ooh, what a cool card trick. It was more black magic and sorcery. And yet here are these people, and God's right in the middle of their life, prodding them to show up at the birth of Christ and to show all of us what worship is about. What a surprising location, a surprising group of people to find God in. Or how about the centurion? He was a military officer in the Roman army. The Roman army that was currently occupying the Holy Land and oppressing all of the Jewish people. That's who he was. He was one of the leaders of the Roman army. Nobody would believe that God could be located in, the, in this situation in his life. Nobody would have thought that. He was the bad guy. He was the enemy. He was the evil empire. He was like an ancient version of Darth Vader. Most of the people reading this story about Jesus would have been shocked 
that he would have even listened to the request of this centurion and, and gone to try to heal his servant. But take a closer look at what's happening here. It turns out this guy wasn't a normal Roman centurion. First of all, he had a heart. He, he actually cared about one of his servants. Most centurions wouldn't have. If the centurion got sick, they would have just viewed it as like a garden tool getting broken. Oh, well, these, these servants don't last very long. No big deal. I'll just go out and get me a newer model. Okay? But he didn't. He wasn't like that. He had a heart. He cared about this servant and went to great lengths to see him get healed. And then he was generous, too. Instead of oppressing the people that he lived with, he funded the building of their sanctuary, their synagogue. And then there's his faith. He had such a strong confidence in Jesus' ability to heal, he was convinced that Jesus could pull it off from a distance. So he sent this message. You don't even need to come to my house, Jesus. Just say the word. Just snap your fingers, man. It will be done. It's one thing to be curious about whether or not Jesus can do something, as many of us are. It's another thing to bank on the fact that he can do it, like this centurion did. I guarantee you, though, there is nobody around this area that would have expected to encounter God in the life of this Roman bad, I almost said something wrong, and this Roman tough guy, okay? So this Roman tough guy, nobody would expect it. Hey, I can find God there. No way. No way, no how. Yet there was God at work cultivating compassion and generosity in his life. And there was Jesus being amazed by his faith. There is a huge lesson for all of us here. There's a huge lesson. We need to love anybody that God puts in front of us. Love even the people you find difficult to love. Love the people that churches have ignored or even rejected. Love the people that at first glance you think, oh, they're probably out of God's sphere of influence. They're probably beyond God's reach. Love those people because when you do, you'll discover something. God will meet you there. And you'll be amazed by their faith, and your faith will grow in the process. This story of the centurion also triggered another thought to me. Not only is God encountered in the midst of very surprising people, but he can also be located in the midst of very surprising situations. I'll give you a few examples of this. The first is silence. I will keep harping on this church to be silent for as long as I'm the pastor here because it's so important to our spirituality. And yet, for most people, silence is awkward and uncomfortable and even foreign to us because we live in such a noisy culture. And that's a shame because God is a fan of the silence. Mother Teresa famously said this line, God is a friend of silence. And that's so true. In Scripture, God says this. I'll put it up on the screen. Be still and know that I am God. That is such an interesting verse to me because that word still it doesn't just mean quiet, it's actually the Hebrew word um, rafa. And it doesn't mean just be quiet, it means to sink into something, like sitting into a really plush, pillowy chair and just going poof into it. That's what that word means. And that word know, it doesn't mean just a head knowledge, it's actually the Hebrew word yada, which means to be intimately acquainted, in, uh, acquainted with something. So in this verse, God is inviting us into the silence so that we can sink into the intimate presence of God. Isn't that a cool thought? Rafa yada. How cool is that? All right? Second surprising situation we can encounter God in is the waiting. 
Have you ever noticed so much of your life seems like you're stuck in the in-between, in the waiting? It's really true. You've experienced experience A, and now you're waiting for experience B to happen, but in the middle, you're just stuck there. You're just stuck, kind of impatiently waiting. You're in between God's promise and his fulfillment. That's where you're at. If that's you, don't be frustrated right now. I've discovered that the waiting, even though Tom Petty says is the hardest part, can be the best part for us. Isaiah 41 says this, they that wait, there's that word again, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. The waiting can be so good because that word wait has to do with hope. And what that scripture is inviting us into is saying, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Encounter God in the in-between parts of your life and your hope will be renewed. That is a very good thing. That way we can live in eager expectation of what's next, not in frustration of what won't come so quickly as we want it to. And the third one is you can discover God in the absence. Sometimes we pray, and everybody has this experience if you're honest. If you're an honest Christian, you've had this experience. You pray and you feel like instead of a direct pipeline to God and being in direct communication with Him and, and really close fellowship, you feel like your prayer kind of flutters up in the air like a sick butterfly, goes into a light and dies and drops on the ground, right? You feel like God is far away or maybe preoccupied and no way you even heard this prayer. So you pray it again and there it goes up again like a moth to the flame and poof, down again. You're going... Oh, well, and you're, you, at first you panic. You think, oh, maybe there isn't a God. Or maybe there is a God and He doesn't care about me. Or maybe I just don't have faith. Maybe there's something wrong with me. We panic. Don't panic in the seeming absence of God. I've discovered that absence is actually a gift. Times of absence make you desperate for God. So when your prayer flies up in the air and dies and falls back down, what do you do? You cry out to God from this deep place in your soul. You pray, you worship, you beg, you plead, you seek, you read, you go after God, and there He is. Those who seek Him will find Him. And you encounter God in the time of absence, and then you discover, oh my goodness, it wasn't God who was absent, it was actually me. There's a famous verse out of Genesis, let's pop it up on the screen, and a guy named Jacob was feeling absent. And then he had this dream, and after the dream he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was unaware. God is present in the absence. That sounds like a nonsensical sentence, but it's so true. God is present in the absence. All right? That's enough about the centurion. Let's move on to the widow. I want to read out of, further down in chapter 7, verses 11 through 15. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And that's actually a polite way to say it. He was moved in his guts. He was just stirred with compassion. And he said to her, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the, the I don't even know how to pronounce that word. It's a plank of wood. He touched the wood. We're just going with wood. They touched the plank of wood they were carrying it on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. Then the dead man sat up and began to talk. And check this last line. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Wow, this is a story of the widow of Nain 
which makes her, in my mind when I first read it, I thought, she sounds like a character of Lord of the Rings, right? Like the elves of Rivendell or the hobbits of the Shire, the widow of Nain, all right? This story is actually a snapshot of what our lives are like. Because two groups here are colliding at the city gate, at the entrance to this town. One group is having a great time. They were following Jesus. They'd seen all of his miracles, heard his teaching. They were just basking in his goodness. Probably a lot of laughter and joy happening. The other group, not so much. There was just grief and pain and confusion because the other group was actually a funeral procession. So these two groups collide at the city gate, all right? And that's what life is like. I'm reading the story, I'm going, but that's what our life is like. Laughter and lament, joy and pain, inhabiting the same space, the same day even. Hasn't that happened to you? Have you ever laughed at a funeral? I was at one yesterday and I laughed half the way through it. Loud laughter. I was so funny, so inappropriate too, I can't even tell you the jokes. Funny though, okay? I'm laughing at a funeral. Or have you ever been to a comedy movie and then something happens in the comedy movie that tweaks your heart a little bit and you cry during the comedy movie? Your life's going to go from good to bad and bad to good in just a flicker. Jesus was right there in the middle of this, this human condition that was going on here and he was showing us that he is equally available to us in the joy and the pain. That's so important for us to realize because there are hyper-religious folks out there that want you to sway too far one direction or the other. I've ran across them. Many of you have. Some hyper-religious people don't want you to experience any sorrow or grief or sadness at all. At all. They absolutely don't. Some think that to be truly spiritual means you have to be always happy. This perpetual bliss. Okay? So to them, a sad Christian is a defeated Christian. It's a faithless Christian. So if you come up to them and share some of your sorrow with them, they'll start quoting verses about the joy of the Lord to you. Oh, it's just great. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with the verses. The verses are great. It's just their motivation is so off. It's so off. You see, they don't want you to have sorrow in your life. They need you to be happy. Because truth be told, they fear sorrow. And they're afraid if they listen to you in your sorrow, your sorrow might get on them, or heaven forbid, they might feel some of their own. And if they feel sorrow, in their mind, they are failing God. They have lost their faith. They're disappointing God. Other Christians err too far the other way. They walk around with constipated faces and, and dour personalities, okay? And they claim that anything that brings any human being pleasure is somehow sinful and wrong. They entitle it a lust of the flesh. Oh, you had fun doing that? That's a lust of the flesh, okay? Their favorite word seems to be shouldn't. Well, you shouldn't say that. Well, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't eat that. You shouldn't drink that. You shouldn't be friends with that person. You shouldn't enjoy that. Oh my gosh, they're shouldn'ting all over the place, okay? <laughs> it's as though they're afraid of joy. We hosted... We hosted, my wife and I came and Joel did too, we hosted a tenant party for all of the tenants of the buildings from Fifth Pearl on up, and they asked us to use our building. We said, sure, and Joel and some of his friends played music, and there was uh, some people that were dancing. Oakshire was here giving out, not water, okay, <laughs> giving out what Oakshire, and there was a winery giving away wine, and there was a raffle, and there was food from, um, I think it was 
um, Cafe Yum. Yeah, Cafe Yum has an office around here, so they brought food. And we were having a raucous time. Well, there was also some people from another church in town, I, it will remain nameless, and they came up to me, and they go, I can't believe you're letting your sanctuary be used, and there's drinking going on here and dancing and music. And I'm holding a glass of wine at the time they're talking to me. I am holding it. I'm bringing it to my wife, right? And I'm going, oh, oh, oh. And so I'm, I walk over and give the wine to her, and I thought, you're surprised that I would let our sanctuary be used for relationship, laughter, food, drink, and joy? Oh, if that's heresy, chain me to the wall, okay? What they've done, people like this, they've separated the spiritual from the physical. They've labeled everything spiritual as good, which it's not, by the way, and they've labeled everything that's physical as bad, which it's also not. You get in big trouble when you separate the spiritual from the physical. That's actually the definition of dying. What happens when you die? Your spirit is separated from your body. So why would you want to live like that? Their teaching, their beliefs actually suck the life out of people. And Jesus doesn't want that. And they are no fun to invite to parties or weddings, okay? You don't want these people at your wedding because you kiss, oh, you shouldn't, oh, okay? And by the way, that kind of thinking is disastrous to a couple's sex life because it just coats a person's sex life with a big heaping helping of shame. Just letting you know that for later on in your life, okay? <laughs> if you're marrying a person and they're shouldn't kind of people, you do. That's a different topic. So, if you sway too far to the one side or the other, it's actually a mistake and it robs you of your humanity. Look what Jesus says later in this chapter. He says this to this group of people that, that are having all kinds of emotions. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, a funeral song, and you didn't cry. Some of the people in this group were afraid of having one of the, those emotions, either sorrow or joy. They're afraid of one of the two experiences that were so beautifully brought together at the city gate. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be afraid of that. It'll rob you of your humanity. Jesus is right there in the middle of this group, of these two groups. He's equally at home in our joy and our sorrow. He knows that we are created with hearts that can be wrung out in pain in one moment and then soar in pleasure and joy in the very next moment. And both are good. Both are human. Another thing I wanted to point out to you about this story has to do with this widow. She had lost her husband, and now she had lost her son, her only son, okay? And I thought, wow, and I was just at a funeral yesterday, as was my wife, and as was one of my best friends. There was just funerals all over the place yesterday. And I thought to myself, I thought, wow, in this situation, to lose a family member or a friend or a loved one is immense pain. And I don't belittle any of that. The pain I saw yesterday at this funeral in, in between the laughter was immense pain. A, a guy had lost his wife and been married for 23 years. So immense pain. But to lose a child, and some of you have, I have no words for that. I think that's the deepest pool of pain in the world. But it's one of the reasons I love this story. Because in this story, this is the first time in the book of Luke that Jesus is referred to as Lord. And that's important. Because you see, Lord at this time was a common term. It was how Caesar was described. A very common phrase at the time was, Caesar is Lord. And in fact, if you didn't utter that at the proper times, you could be executed for not saying Caesar is Lord. 
lords at this time were some people to be feared and obeyed. They could smite you at any moment. Most people just wanted to keep their distance from any lord. Kind of like the God some of you grew up believing. All fear and dread, right? But in Luke, here is Jesus and is referred to for the first time as Lord, and then he instantly does something to redefine the term. He steps right in to the middle of this woman's deep pool of despair, and he rescues her by giving her back her son. Luke wants us to know that, yeah, this Lord, Jesus, he's different from the other Lords, the Caesars. This Lord touches lepers. This Lord is friends with prostitutes and criminals. This Lord parties at weddings. This Lord reaches in and notices and helps a lonely widow. Yeah, this Lord doesn't kill. This Lord heals. This Lord isn't the Lord of empire and greed and power. This Lord is the Lord of love and compassion. I want to pray for us, um, but before I do, I'm going to ask um, some of the prayer people I talked to to come forward. There's going to be three groups of people here on different sides of the stage and on the middle. You can come on up right now if you could. And I'm going to ask some of you to do something very brave. We sang about coming to the altar, and I'm so glad we sang that song. Because some of you feel like the centurion or the widow. You're struggling with loss, maybe. You're struggling with heartache or despair. Or maybe you're struggling with a situation you can't control. You can't fix it. And you know you're way above your pay grade, okay? And there is something that happens when we move out of our normal place and we come forward for prayer. Sometimes the first step in recovering your hope and healing is the first step of coming up to somebody and saying, can you pray for me? And not only are we going to pray, they have oil, and they're going to be anointing you with oil. And, and that is not something weird. I mean, where do you go when people touch you with oil? Not very many places, okay? And, but we do it here, and the oil just signifies, it's, it's a physical point of reference to a spiritual truth. It just signifies that God is touching you, that God is at work in your life. So I'm going to pray for all of us. And if some of you are feeling like, oh, I'm doing fine, I can, I can go, then that'll be your dismissal. You can take off and please have a great week. But if some of you feel like, I need an extra dose of prayer today, then come forward to one of these three groups of people. You don't even have to tell them what you need prayer for, but you can if you want to. And they'll just anoint you with oil and pray for you. And let this be the first step in being given hope and given healing like this centurion was, like this widow was. All right? Let me pray for us.